100 episodes. So crazy. I can't believe it. I, it's crazy that I've had that many episodes in just a little over a year and a half. So thank you all for your support. It's been fun to see the show grow, and I hope it continues to do so. I grow with you guys listening and sharing it and supporting me, so thank you for doing so. Uh, and my guest today is a special thing for the 100th episode. I've got Paul Gargano. Uh, so Paul worked at Metal Edge Magazine, which uh, this was basically my Bible as a teenager. Uh, this was before the internet was around or very big. And if you wanted even like a sliver of any info on any band that you liked, you had to get it from magazines. So I would get Metal Edge and Rip and Circus and Hit Parader, whatever I could get my hands on. But Metal Edge covered a lot of the band's that I really love like Skid Row and the Warrants and the Guns N' Roses. And they continue to cover that stuff, even when some of the other ones didn't. Uh, and Paul worked at Metal Edge and then he eventually took over it. And uh, recently he bought it back. So he owns it. Um, so there may be some things happening in the future, like a podcast. Uh, we're not really sure exactly. It's, it hasn't all been solidified, but he owns it. So I'm excited to see where the future holds for that. Uh, Paul's got great stories to tell. We're going to find out what happened with Metal Edge and the original editor, Jerry Miller. And we're going to get his thoughts on Queensryche and the split there. Uh, Great White recently doing live shows during the pandemic and much, much more. So I know this episode goes long, uh, but I probably could have listened to Paul tell more stories. So I hope you guys enjoy too. Welcome, Paul Gargano. I hope I said that right. To the metal, to the, <laughs> to the Metal Edge, to the Chuck Shoot podcast, Paul Gargano from Metal Edge. It's amazing. Yeah. Would be God. I've been talking about a metal edge podcast for so long. It's just never. Uh, we just taking the finding the time to get it off the ground. Oh, okay. Is that the, okay? So yeah, because we got a lot to talk about. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, your background. I want to talk about metal edge. I want to talk about band stories. I want to talk about managing bands, and then I want to talk about your most current project, the Gods of Metal Rag Ragnarok. 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 Yeah which is a game which incorporates all this heavy metal music. It sounds really cool. So, but we'll start at the beginning. I'll just kind of go through chronologically, try to do this like in around an hour, maybe hour and a half. I know you probably got to jump at some point, um, but it's interesting. I, I listened to a few interviews with you and I learned so much. And I just want, now I just want to tell the story and kind of clarify, but you actually started in politics. I did. Yes. You I did a, a political newspaper in Connecticut. Yeah, I started my first. The first thing I ever wrote was a uh, was an opinion piece about David Duke. Yeah, the, you and you were supportive of David Duke, kind of. Uh, well, kind of, but not really. I mean, I wasn't in support of David Duke, and it's interesting because, it, like, historically now, if you look, he was like the predecessor to Trump in so many ways. But the um, it's it was more of David Duke being allowed to be on the ballots, like right. whether you want to vote for him or not. We live in a country where if you, you should be allowed to run. And if people want to elect you, you know, if people want to elect a reality star to be president, <laughs> they should be allowed to react to the electoral reality star to be president. Right. But, that's, so that's what democracy is exactly Were people saying that he shouldn't even be able to run back, back. God, this was, God, I was probably 18 years old. Okay. I was probably 17 years old at the time. So this was, I'm 49 now. So we're talking 32 years ago. Dang. They were telling David Duke because of his white supremacy background, he shouldn't be allowed to run for politics. And the point was, my point was, we can't, we can't decide who should and shouldn't be able to run. Right. You should just not vote for them. Yeah. Well, and we get a whole thing on that with cancel culture. And then it's like, when you start canceling people, and on the left and the right, even and both. And then eventually the, the middle just starts getting smaller and smaller. 
and then it starts. To, so, I mean, that's kind of we could do a whole other that's podcast my, on that. That's my that's that's kind of my stance on politics, not to get pol- political. Yeah. but it's we need a bigger middle. I mean, the, the, sure. the problem is we cater to the far. Everything caters to the far right and the far left because that's what gets you news clicks. Yeah, you know? no, um, the, you should yeah. listen to my interview or don't even have to listen to the whole thing. But uh, Sahaj Tikatin from uh, mm-hmm. the band Raw. And he yeah. wrote with Motley Crue and he's doing all this production work, but he, his new song intercorrupted, he explained the lyrics of that. And it was like exactly what we're just talking about, how the middle, it's like the far right and the far left are kind of using each other as they're making each other stronger by, you know, so it, riling up the drama. It's just, you know, you got, it's the extremes today. So exactly. Those of us, those of us who exist in the middle, like I always say, you know, this, there's never a black, it's not a black and white world. We live in gray. Exactly. You know? Yeah. The world gray. It's all shades. And everybody that's in the middle is getting squeezed because if you're not all right. the way to the left or you're not all the way to the right, nobody wants to hear your voice anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's well, yeah, nice. I, honestly, everybody I know, every conservative I know and every liberal I know thinks relatively the same as I do. We're all in the middle. We just feel forced to identify a certain way. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. It, you know, it's, it's about finding that middle ground. And I think in the past, say probably since the internet started we've just lost that we've lost that middle ground because the internet has given everybody every extreme now has a credible voice and and those are the loudest voices on twitter yeah exactly the algorithms facebook yeah exactly if i if i go on uh twitter and i just wrote a moderate you know, middle road political stance, nobody cares. But if I write something extreme far right or extreme far left, people are going to argue, they're going to interact, they're going to retweet, they're going to, and so it's going to jump to the top of the algorithm. So it's like, yeah, we've always had these crazy people, but now they have a voice and they have a loud voice and it's kind of scary. But anyways, we totally got off topic here, but politics. So then your first uh, music thing was public enemy, which is kind of political. That was your first writing piece on music. And then, uh, this was cool. The 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 uh, album review you did for Bon Jovi. You got to interview the keyboard player David Bryan. I mean, he's still a member of Bon Jovi. And then you got to go backstage and 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 meet Bon Jovi. So what, so what basically happened? I did the political piece, and the the newspaper it was. The, it was a magazine. It was a little magazine. Okay. Uh, they asked me if I wanted to review the Public Enemy show. They said, since you're into politics, would you want to review? Public yeah, Enemy? makes sense. Yeah, sure. So I went and I, I'd never reviewed a concert before. And then um, I went off to college. That was right before college. I go off to college and I wasn't writing. I was doing radio at college and I was in one of my classes, one of my writing classes. And I had a Bon Jovi shirt on and some girl who wouldn't normally talk to me uh, <laughs> was, was like, do you, do you really like Bon Jovi? And I'm like, what kind of stupid question is that? I'm like, yeah. Um, cause what was year guy, was this? This was like 92 when they were not as cool as faith album. So this was, yeah. this was the faith 92. Um, I think that was, yeah, yeah so this was 92. So at this point I had been doing radio. I had been just doing metal radio in particular at Marquette in Milwaukee. And she asked me and I was leather jacket. I had like, you know, it was Milwaukee. So I had a jean jacket, leather jacket over it, super long hair. And was a complete wise ass when she asked me if I really liked Bon Jovi. <laughs> and she told me, no, no, I work for the school newspaper and Bon Jovi's coming. Do you want to do an album review for us? And I was just like, oh, yeah, I could do that. Easy. And I'd never written an album review before, but I'm like, how hard could it be? So the I did that. And three days later, they asked me if I wanted to interview a member of the band. And I was like, 
sure. I've never interviewed an artist before, but I interviewed David Bryan. Were you nervous? Not really. Um, it was, I've always been, I've always been kind of taking an intellectual quasi intellectual approach to music. So I, I was never really worried about having things to talk about in that regard. Okay. I was a huge Bon Jovi fan. I mean, I'm still, a, I still am a big Bon Jovi fan, but obviously, I mean, back then they were one of the biggest bands in the world. Um, not really, you know, you just, from my perspective, it was just, you throw down a list of questions. What are things as a fan, what are things that I wanted to know the answers to? And I, then we sent a tear sheet of the article. It was a newspaper. The internet didn't exist. We sent a tear sheet, faxed a tear sheet to the record label. And like a day later, we hear back that John wants to meet me, which was like, what the, you know, what? That's crazy. And, yeah. Yeah. So I went to the show in Madison at the Dane County Coliseum and went like, I literally went to the box office. There was a note, please bring this note backstage, show it to the security guard tell him John wants to meet you. And literally, I mean, this was, it was, this was before cell phones. There was, this was how you had to communicate with people. And uh, yeah. So I went backstage. John and, yeah, because he was excited because he, he already had the regular press, but for getting college kids at that point yeah. in their career, they were not the cool college kid band. At that. So he was really excited to have somebody exactly on his corner. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what he told me. He said, you know, it means a lot to be able to get someone, like to have a fan like you in a position that you're in is great because mm -hmm. that's the hardest market for us to reach. Mm -hmm. So he's like, if you ever need, and, and to John Bon Jovi's credit, he said, if you ever need anything from me, ask, I'll be here for you. And it was interesting. Just like the song. Well, yeah, <laughs> but it was great because at Metal Edge, I would be told, um, you know, oh, John's not available. And I wouldn't argue, do the interview with whoever. But at one point, I actually pushed and I pressed and I said, John said if I ever wanted, <laughs> I would I really want this interview right now. Yeah. And sure enough, I got the interview with John. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Was, so so let's get, so then, yeah, you're the editor at Marquette. Uh, that, for was, the, that was, yeah, that was fast forwarding to Metal Edge. Yeah. So you're the editor at Marquette and you interviewed Brett Favre. You did all these great things. And then you're you're not on Metal Edge. You're, you're actually in the chat room. So this is around internet time. And you're kind of like... And ironically, I've taken three sips of coffee. So this is my normal talking speed. Okay. Um, the, what's at Marquette? And then yeah. I did the Bon Jovi article. I was inputting the Bon Jovi article for the review of the concert because I went to the concert. I'm inputting that into the computer because we had to go to these massive computers and input the stories that then they went straight to a layout. We didn't even have no, I had a word processor. Like nobody even had computers back then. Like wow. this is how old I am. So we had to input into this machine. And as I'm doing this, there's this argument going on behind me with the staff of the student newspaper with the advisor. And they're basically what happened was they sold an ad to an abortion clinic. And Marquette is a Catholic, it's a Jesuit university. So it's Catholic. And they were arguing that they should be allowed to run a abortion clinic ad in the school newspaper. The administration said, you can't, we're a Catholic, we're a Catholic school. We can't have abortion clinic ads running in our newspaper. And the argument that the editor used was it's freedom of speech. And I not knowing anything about journalism turned around and I was just annoyed because, you know, I'm the annoying rocker guy. I just turned <laughs> around and I kept giving him dirty looks. And the girl made a wise ass crack to me. She was like, just, just file your story. Stop giving it. And, it was just, and finally I turned around and I was like, 
you don't have freedom of speech. I said, I'm tired of listening to you argue about freedom of speech. I said, you don't even understand. I was in constitutional law at the moment because I was a pre-law student. Right. I said, you don't understand how freedom of speech works. And she goes, I know what I'm talking about. And the the advisor goes, no, 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 let him talk. And I said, freedom of speech does not apply to private institutions. I said, we go to a Catholic school. The church is the institution that dictates what our freedom of speech is. I said, you you don't even understand the very doctrine you're talking about. The guy was like, he's absolutely right. So that happened. An hour later, half the staff of the student newspaper resigned over it. I got a phone call from that advisor saying, hey, come to my office. And he basically sat me down and he goes, what's your major? What are you doing? And I explained to him, I'm pre-law, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, here's what happened. The whole, basically four-fifths of our editorial board resigned. We have a newspaper that has to come out tomorrow without a staff. I'm going to hire you right now. You're the editor of whatever department you want. I've already checked. I know you can write because I was a writing, I was an English major. And he goes, I know you can write. He goes, I'm going to make you an editor, whatever department you want right now. And I was just like, I'll take the music department. I was like, I'll do music. Okay. And he's like, are you sure you don't want to like do news or anything else? I go, no, no, no. I want to do music because it ties in with what I'm, what I love, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So that was it. I mean, I became, I literally stepped in as the entertainment editor of the newspaper and that started everything for me at that point. So, and I didn't know, I didn't know how to, for an answer because I didn't know any better. So when Garth Brooks would come to town, I would hit up Garth Brooks people for interviews. And when Billy Joel comes to town, I'd hit up Billy Joel. And because Marquette was such a big college university, they always said yes. So basically as a college student, I was doing stuff with Robert Plant, Billy Joel, Garth Brooks, Janet Jackson. And I just, by the time I graduated, the Associated Press hired me as an editor before I even graduated. So the day after I graduated, I went to work for the AP. I became rock critic for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I mean, everything evolved pretty quickly at that point. And then the Metal Edge thing started because I did an interview with Ozzy Osbourne. Right. And Jerry Miller wanted it. Right. Yeah, she was, was the editor. It was a front page story for the Sunday edition of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I interviewed Ozzy and he, Jerry, there was at this point, AOL existed. So we would all go into the AOL chat rooms and Jerry would do metal edge chats. I didn't, I didn't even read metal edge at the time. No, but didn't you, weren't you kind of a troll or something? Didn't you kind of go in there and troll him a little bit? I mean, I wasn't a troll, but I was friends with all these bands because I was the rock critic. So I was like Uh. at the Journal Sentinel and I wrote for all the papers in Milwaukee. So I knew the Warrant guys. I knew the Saigon Kick guys. I knew all these bands because every time they'd come through town, they'd play at the venue that I lived near and I'd hang out with them and I would write about them. So they would be, oh, come, come hang out at this Metal Edge. And I'm like, all right. So I basically <laughs> went into the middle edge chat. I made a, like a typo negative screen name. It was black number three. And I went into the, I went into the uh, metal edge chat and everybody was talking to me just as much as they were talking to Jerry. And Jerry was like, who are you? Why are people talking to you? Oh. And somebody started asking me about my Aussie interview. Then she hit me up privately and said, how did you get an interview with Aussie? And I went through the whole thing. And she's like, I want your Aussie interview for metal edge. And that's how the whole metal edge. Yeah. So, but do you know why Aussie didn't want to do a, an interview with uh, Jerry? What do you have your yeah, suspicions? There was, there, was, there was drama. There was just, it was, there was drama. With okay. Jerry and I. You don't know what it was though. I mean, I do, but it's not, it's not, 
it was it was uh, Jerry had drama with a bunch of people and it wasn't necessarily Jerry's fault. It was just there's I mean, look, you know, Sharon. I mean, I don't have to tell you about Sharon's story. <laughs> oh, yeah. I heard a crazy story about Sharon, like pissing in a glass. Oh, it's in Randy Ro- or not Randy Rhodes. It's a uh, Rudy Sarzo's book about. Yeah. Yeah. It's cra- Yeah. No, I would not want to piss her off Sharon, and get on her Sharon's bad side. Personality. And I think Sharon had issues with Jerry out of the gates. Okay. When Sharon and not, you know, she just had issues and she wouldn't, she didn't want Jerry talking to Ozzy. I mean, was that right. So, so what? So you got that Aussie interview and then she offered you a managing editor job. So it basically happened. I, I, I didn't read, like I said, I didn't read metal edge and um, you're a rip guy. I I love rip too. I was a rip guy. (laughs) So I, I asked a bunch of friends of mine who were in bands, what should I do? What do you think? And they're like, dude, if you could write for metal edge, that would be amazing. Oh my God. So in even Mitch Schneider at the time, who was Ozzy's publicist, he said to me, Look, Ozzy has given you the blessing to sell. Sharon has given you the blessing to sell the article to Jerry. But why don't you try to parlay this into Mar? And mm. I was just like, yeah, good idea. So I said to Jerry, look, I'll give you the Ozzy interview, but I want to start writing for the magazine. Smart. Because I wasn't writing. I wasn't really. I only had a few magazines nationally that I was writing for, and they weren't metal, weren't metal magazines. Mm-hmm. So she, she was like, yeah, sounds good. So, I mean, literally within a week I went from giving her the Aussie story. I think the first article I ever wrote, the first story I ever did for them was a backstage thing with Warren and Vince Neal at the rave in Milwaukee. But one of my, my first big story, I covered the kiss reunion show at tiger stadium. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah so so that, you- that was about the time I came into metal edge and then I moved as metal edge happened, I just kind of burned out of the Midwest. I just mm-hmm. got to a point where I was like, there's nowhere left for me to climb here. I want to go to New York. So my family's from Connecticut. I basically moved back home, took a job as sports editor at a whole chain of newspapers in Connecticut. And within six months of that, Jerry offered me the managing editor's position at metal edge. Right. And so then she was kind of, but she was more protective of quote unquote, like her bands, like Aerosmith and Warren, and she wouldn't usually typically let you interview those bands. Why do you think that was, so you got stuck kind of being the Marilyn Manson corn interview kind of guy, but you secretly liked Warren and winger and all that stuff. So why was she so protective of those other bands? Yeah, it wasn't really secretive. I mean, the thing, and it's not, it's easy to take this as a negative and it's, I'm not trying to be, it's not negative about Jerry. It's yeah. just, it just happened that was her niche. I mean, Jerry's world was, you know, those bands from the late eighties and early nineties. I mean, that was, that was what she carved her niche out of and made a name for herself. And quite frankly, that's what she built metal edge off of. Um, So when I came in, I obviously, those artists had everything to do with the fact that I got the job I got at metal edge because I had relationships with all of them. I already had relationships with the warrant guys. I mean, I interviewed Eddie Van Halen, twice two or three times before i even started at metal edge i don't think i ever even interviewed eddie van halen as the editor of metal edge huh. i think i only interviewed sammy and dave while i was at metal edge but i had done like two or three eddie interviews before i even started at metal edge so i was so entrenched in that genre, in that music scene i made perfect sense to go to the magazine however she had her relationships and she was in LA and I was in New York. So Mm. obviously it's easier for her to cover warrant or poison or those bands because she's in LA where everything was happening. And I was never just a rock guy. I also liked metal. So what happened, um, I just 
gravitated towards the bands that I basically had unhindered access to for the magazine. She she wasn't covering Corn. She mm-hmm. wasn't covering Marilyn Manson. She didn't want to cover Typo Negative. Those were bands she had no interest in in Metal Edge. So basically, as when I came in, because she was doing all the '80s stuff, I brought those bands into the magazine, and it was and she was she was great with that. I mean, she wasn't no different than when I took over the magazine, and my um, assistant editor was Kathy Campania. She loved a lot of the more like metal core bands that I just couldn't stand. So she was <laughs> able to she was able to write about a lot of that stuff that I didn't want to write about because I didn't want to go to, you know, mosh pit shows every night of the week. Right. That was, you know what I mean? So it yeah. was just, she loved that. She loved that angry music. And I was at a point where I wasn't that angry anymore. So I sure. would rather deal with my Mansons, my corns, my warrants, my poisons, and let her deal with the new bands that she really liked. And okay. it's, I, I kind of feel like that's important for the genre. It's important. Sure for the publications. So it wasn't a bad thing with Jerry. It was just, you know, she was protective of her until she left the magazine. I never did an Aerosmith interview. You know, it was Mm. just, that was anytime Aerosmith came in, she did Aerosmith. That Mm. was it. And anytime she could talk to the Warren. See, because I think it would be better to have a fresh perspective and a different set of questions. And just like you guys, I think it'd be better to mix, but I understand too. Cause she, she just, I couldn't picture her interviewing Marilyn Manson either. Well, yeah. And well, and that was the thing. Like I, they, they didn't want to talk to her because her line of questioning, she also, we both had different journalistic approaches. She was a lot more about the personal lives and a lot more about, I mean, I mean, honestly, she was like a predecessor to TMZ in a lot of ways because she was reporting about stuff that honestly I had zero interest in. And, you know, right. Like, you know, when my wife was reading Metal Edge, that was something that she was very interested in. She want, she was interested in the girlfriends and stuff like that. Yeah. When I, I didn't read Metal Edge because I was more interested in Lon Friend interviewing Soundgarden or Pearl Jam or something. I was I wanted to know more about the music. You know, yeah. I wanted an in-depth article with Jeff Tate talking about the lyrics behind Operation Mindcrime. I didn't want to hear an article about how he met his wife and what his daughter does and everything else. <laughs> so that was it made for a nice dichotomy when the two of us were when we were at our best, when we were like a rhythm, it made for a really good dichotomy because I'm the guy that would go, you know, have a handful full of drinks with the poison guys and have a completely different angle in a completely different story than what Jerry had. Yeah. Cause speaking of that's an interesting kind of tidbit. I heard you talking and, and about. Manson, and Manson didn't want people poking and prodding into his private Manson wanted. I know. <laughs> we'll get to Manson that. later. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Manson wanted Manson and corn corn didn't want to be like a hair metal band. Sure. Corn wanted to talk about dark, just disturbing stuff. And that wasn't Jerry's style, which was fair. That's not, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. But she, no, just, she was, like, yeah. Like, so she was very like, much about their personal lives and so much like she would sometimes photograph them, a rock star backstage with a girl. And later the rock star would like call you and say, Hey, that wasn't my wife or my girlfriend. Can you take that photo out? And then you would pretend that the photo got lost or something. Yeah, and then she's like, Hey, cool. where's that photo I took? And you're like, Oh, I don't know. It's uh, randomly disappeared. Yeah, that photo was, And when you sent me the slides, that photo wasn't there. Yeah, no, I, but that's exactly, that was the difference. And then once but she I wasn't trying there, to like catch them in the act of, she just didn't, she didn't oh, know or she wasn't that it wasn't, it wasn't malicious. She had, and she look, she created, she, she wasn't the first editor of metal edge, but she's the one that made the magazine what it was. And she, her vision was really spot on for that era. I mean, she, what she did was 
spot on with what people wanted when that music was at its peak. It's just, you know, the, the scene shifted a little bit and that's not what people wanted to read. That's not what Corn wanted written about them. That's not what Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Manson didn't want, you know, an hour of questions about, are you the kid from the wonder years? <laughs> and like, just, that's not what I remember wanted. that rumor. No, I yeah. liked it though, because I felt like it had a good mix of, I mean, I remember reading like track by track album reviews of like the new warrant doggy dog. And they would go through each song and then they would explain like Janie would explain each song and what it was about. And this is before the album comes out. So then it would get right. you excited about the, you're like, Oh, machine gun. Wow. That sounds like a cool song. Like I can't wait to hear it. And you know, the, yeah. but then, yeah, there was like some of the person, some of the, the personal stuff, like some of that stuff I didn't care, you know, where they would do like the, the metal roundup or whatever. And they'd be like, yeah. they'd ask like 30 uh, bands, the same question, like what's your worst habit and stuff. And, and so I, I always wondered how they did that. Like, did they, Save so those questions good, or? Good for that. Um, so we would do, and it kind of got fine tuned over the years, but basically what we would do is we would come up with 12, 12 months worth of questions. So mm. what's the first record you ever bought? What's your favorite movie? Um, what is, what's your favorite dish to cook? What's we would come up with a year's worth of questions. Yeah. And then anytime we did an interview, we would tack that onto the interview. So, cause this, okay. again, this, oh, was, before okay. this yeah. was before the internet. So it wasn't as simple as sending, you know, now it's easy because like, you know, you can go on Instagram and I could, you know, I could hit Eric Turner up on Instagram and go, Hey, can I, can I ask you a couple of questions? And Eric be like, yeah, no problem. He's but awesome. you know, you can't do that back then. Yeah. You couldn't do that. You had to go through a publicist oh. and called the publicist. So you would fax them questions and then they would have to oh. fax the questions to the band. And honestly, I mean, as someone who manages bands now, by the time you're faxing to one person to fax to another one, you're never getting those questions back. So the internet made life so much easier. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I email people directly. How, what we would do, say I had an interview with Marilyn Manson. If there was five minutes left at the end where I could go through it, I would ask him the 12 questions. Oh, okay. And it just boom. Hey, don't think just in like, Certain artists didn't want to do it. Others <laughs> loved it, you huh. know, but interesting. But anytime you would do an interview, you tack those on at the end. Okay. That was- yeah. Cause I just remember, but it'd be funny too, because it had such a weird layout. Like, I think that's why I probably got a bad rap is because the covers and I heard you talking about this. It was the same guy who made like those tiger beat and those like teen magazines. Yeah. And so that's why it kind of looked like that, but you'd see like, it would say like all the band names that were in the article or in the magazine, it would say like warrant trickster skid row. And I'd be like, Oh cool. And then like, I lo- lo- open it up and it'd be like, here's a picture of skid row. And I'm like, okay, but like, where is there an article, an interview with them? Or it's like, well, I don't, that's, that doesn't really yeah. count as like a skid row, like interview or like tidbit. Like it would it'd be very a small amount about them, but it sold yeah. the magazine. Cause I bought it. I'd be like, cool. Skid rows <laughs> in it. And then it would be this tiny little tidbit or a picture. So yeah. You didn't realize, you didn't realize by skid row, we meant it was an ad for Sebastian box cameos. Yeah. Yeah. That was- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so she had her run Jerry. Anyways, Jerry, going back to Jerry, she had her run-ins with the owner and she ended up leaving the magazine and then she, or she got fired and then you got her job and then she kind of got mad at you because you didn't quit with her. Is that what it was? So, so there was, there was, um, there was, there was an ongoing back and forth at that point. I got along really well with the owner. I was in the New York office and this is the other thing. The magazine was New York based. 
she mm. lived in LA. Okay. So I was in the owner was a younger guy, not I mean older than me, but a younger guy. Um, and it's just there was just personality clashes, and um, they just a bunch of stuff went down that wasn't good. <laughs> and he called me into the office one day and said, "Hey, um, the magazines. I'm getting rid of Jerry. The magazine's yours if you want it." Um, otherwise let me know now you got a couple minutes, but I'm letting her go today and you're either taking the magazine or I got to find it. You got to help me find another editor. And I said, of course I'll take the magazine. So, um, you know, he basically fired slash quit depends on your interpretation, but you know, um, it was, yeah, that was, it was pretty much that. Quick. What was there one specific incident or was, I know I heard you talk to something about Peter Chris that she had posted a, a picture yeah, of him. That, the, basically the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back, there was a, um, there was a, we, we had a contract with kiss where we did their kiss programs and she, again, she would send everything. She was executive editor. I was managing editor. I basically, she was the top, but I ran the magazine out of New York because I was the one dealing with everything on a day-to-day basis. And um, she sent in a bunch of kiss articles for this kiss program. And there was a questionable caption and it was Peter with his daughter. And she said in the caption that Peter and his daughter have been estranged for 10 years or something. And I immediately said to her, I think we're crossing the line. I don't think that should be there. And she didn't agree. She thought it should be. And I'm like, and I pushed back and she, she pushed back at me. And I said, you know what? I'm not getting in a fight over it. It is what it is. I went to the owner and I said, just, I'm just giving you a heads up right now. I don't agree with this. Jerry exact quote was, it's my magazine. You work for me. I said, I'm not fight. I, I said, I don't have the energy to fight with her. I'm telling you right now, this is going to cause problems. And he said, did you, did you get it? How'd she tell you that? And I said, I got that from over the phone and he goes, get it in writing. And I go, why? He goes, this is going to be the final nail in her coffin. And he goes, he goes, I go, do you want to check with Gene? And he goes, Nope. He goes, get it in writing, get it in writing that you said, take it. And she didn't. And she sent it to me, you know, I emailed her. I said, I'm just making it known. And she emailed me back and said, it's, she basically said in writing, I'm, I'm you work for me or something like that. Okay. And so when it came out, Peter lost his mind and okay. you know, that was the end of it. <laughs> and so that, that was the final, that was the final thing I think that broke between her and the owner. And, and between you as well, right? Because you said that she hates you and she wishes you were dead and she tried to start a smear campaign. I don't, about, I don't know about wishes I was dead, but she definitely isn't. Um, she's def- I'm definitely not on her Christmas card list or her, her Hanukkah list. But she said something um, like you hate women or something. She tried to start a smear campaign so, against so you. After, so when she, when she fired slash quit, whatever, um, she called me and said, I'm leaving the magazine. I expect you to leave the magazine with me. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And she just wasn't, that was literally the last time I've ever spoken. She got mad. She hung up on me. That was the last time I've ever talked to her. So then she just kind of went on a smear campaign saying, yeah, she told Sharon Osbourne. She told Sharon Osbourne that I hate women and I hate Ozzy. And uh, it, it uh, let's, let's put it this way. If all of this happened in the year 2020, it would have been a much bigger headache than it was in the year, uh, 2000 and whatever it was 2000 what was it 98 99 2000 I don't know when it was but um she basically went on as much of a smear campaign as she could 
but there wasn't really, I mean, everybody knew, everybody knew she was lying at that point. I mean, it wasn't, I had great relationships with everybody. So, so at that you know, point, do you just kind of ignore it? Is that your strategy? You didn't try to reach out and say, Hey, why are you saying this thing? Or you didn't try well, I mean, honestly, when it gets, when it's that malicious, what's the point? I mean, it's just, there wasn't, um, I, she made it very clear through other people that she had no interest in talking to me. And honestly, it's just, I, I'm the type of person who I don't need that energy. So I just literally moved on. And honestly, whatever she, she could say whatever she wants to the guys in warrant at the end of the day, they have their relationship with me and they're, I'm not worried about it. You know what I mean? So it hasn't, nobody's stopped being your friend or stopped talking to you because of things she said or only issue I had, and this is the only issue that manifested itself from all of it was Sharon Osbourne because, and ironically, Sharon was the reason I started working at metal edge to begin with. Right. Um, I was backstage and I've told this story before, but I was backstage at a black Sabbath show. I was with Pantera was opening. I was with uh, a couple of the guys from typo negative and a couple friends in the Pantera dressing room. I think it was Pantera Deftones. So it was black Sabbath Pantera Deftones. And we were before the show, we were backstage and one of Sharon's assistants or someone from the tour personnel came in and asked where Paul Gargano was. And I bunch of us jokingly raised our hand because everybody used to always say I looked like I was in typo negative. And so it was like me and my friends and somebody else. We all raised our hand. Saying, oh, I'm Paul Gargano. She's like, then you're all getting thrown out. And we're like, what? what? I'm like, I'm Paul Gargano. And it was um, Sharon had me thrown out of the Black Sabbath show and no explanation at all. Um, the Pantera guys were like, Paul's not leaving. And she's like, if Paul leaves, if you keep Paul here, you're off the tour. Like it was, Oh my God, it was was bad. And, um, what did you do? Well, no. So I was just like, I'm like, whatever I'll leave. I'm like, guys, don't worry about it. And there's like a hotel on the, this is Nassau Coliseum. There's a hotel there. So I literally went to the hotel bar. I, I remember I was reading a book. I had a Bukowski book in the car. And I literally sat at the hotel bar and read Bukowski for like three hours while I was uh, waiting for the show to get out. But I called Sharon the next day and she basically told me that Jerry told her that I hate women and I hate Ozzy. And now that she knows that I'm not welcome at any Ozzy shows or any Black Sabbath shows. And she said she was going to go so far as to put a clause in the Ozfest contract that any band who let me into Ozfest would be thrown off the Ozfest. So it was like this huge, ugly, oh my like, God. Was, I was like, and again, you don't fight Sharon Osbourne. You just, you know what I mean? Was, <laughs> <laughs> so my, I basically was like, all right, if that's the way it's going to be, you know, I, I tried speaking my mind. I tried explaining to her that the only reason I even worked at metal edge was because she hated Jerry and she wouldn't let her husband talk to Jerry, but she wanted, she didn't want to hear that. She was just like, um, she heard it, but she didn't want to process it. And I said, okay, just so we're on the same page, metal edge won't be covering any band that's on Ozfest. I said, that's the, if you, that, that's the game you want to play. I said, I'll blacklist. If you blacklist me, I'll blacklist Ozfest. And she goes, let's go have fun. She goes, let's, let's see what your little, let's see what your little magazine can do without Ozfest or something like that, you know? But, Jesus. Um, so I, I pivoted and covered Warped. And that you could tell when that was because that's the year. If you go back and look at back issues, yeah. it's the year my chemical romance were on the cover for the Warped tour instead oh. of doing an Ozfest cover. Wow. And 
the turning that lasted for probably the whole boycott lasted for like, for example, if I did an interview with seven dust and they were on Ozfest, I would not mention Ozfest anywhere in the seven dust article. Hmm. So if, if I did an article with somebody on Ozfest, I wouldn't give any ink to Ozfest, but I would cover the band. Hmm. So it was like, we had this whole little, like this thing going back and forth. And then Sharon was managing cold chamber and I got an email from, um, their publicist, Jamie Roberts was the publicist at the time for Cold Chamber at Roadrunner. And she called me asking me to cover Cold Chamber. And I said, who manages them? And she said, Sharon Osborne. I said, tell them I'm sorry. If they want to be in Metal Edge, they have to get a new manager. <laughs> she goes, what? And I go, I won't cover any bands that Sharon works with. And it's not, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And she's like, why not? And Jamie and I were really close. And I was like, I told her the whole story about what happened with, she goes, Oh, I'm fixing this. And like, sure enough, five minutes later, I got a phone call from Sharon going, well, we had a fun little spat, but it's over now. <laughs> again. And that was it. Really? Like, That's and it. That was the end of it. Like literally the next, like literally that happened. Sharon invited me to England for Christmas, like with her and Ozzy. And it ended up not happening for some reason. But then Sharon was the next wow. Sharon on the cover of metal edge. Yeah. That's so awesome. Like, just, so did yeah. you ever find out why? So she did, did she just finally not believe Jerry or she just didn't care? Well, it's and Sharon would agree with this. This is, don't forget. This was before the voice even for Sharon. Yeah. This is where Sharon was like, she was basically, everything was a huge dick swinging contest in the music industry. Mm. And Sharon had to swing twice as hard as everybody else did because she was a woman. Mm. And that's basically what it boiled down to. Okay. She, she was, slam stamping her fist and that was it and that's what sharon did i mean she did so it. you don't hate her, women or the anything sharon, the sharon osborne stories are legendary in the yeah, music oh for community. sure you, but you don't hate women i know you it's something about you dated a female musician <laughs> not, or something I do not hate so but what is that what it was about something about you dating one of the female musicians or something is that is that what the problem was about that jerry was talking about or there wasn't a problem no mm-hmm. she's just she she I, I don't even know where that came from, but that's what she told people. Like there's absolutely, there's, there's literally absolutely no reason for that to even be said. Like I, anybody that knows me knows quite the contrary. I have more female friends than I have male friends. Um, I, yeah, Cause you said yeah, you were best I, friends I, with I, Jerry. I actually dated, I dated a girl that was in a band that metal edge covered for a while. Okay. Um, it was, yeah, it was, um, that there was, there was no reason for her to say that other than just like reactionary anger. Okay. So she's angry. So whatever happened to Jerry Miller, like, does she work in media or something totally different because she seems to be off social media? Like, I don't know. I was always curious, like what happened? I didn't ever understand, you know, before the internet, I just remember like she was gone and um, I didn't understand what happened. Yeah. A couple of business partners and I, we bought metal edge several years ago. So we actually bought the magazine. Um, after, after I left, it got sold and the new published, the new owner and I hated each other. I mean, it yeah. was, it was, you called it him was, pig vomit, right? I didn't call him pig vomit. That's, that's Howard. you're confusing me with Howard Stern. No, but you <laughs> thought he was kind of like, isn't this the guy that uh, tried that, to get no, the, no, in another interview, I, I compared him to that guy. Yeah. yeah you're yeah, saying that he, you tried to put Scientology brochures in your, in the magazine. It was, it was, that was, yeah, it was, it, it was just, it was a weird, he didn't weird. Okay. music at all. He wanted the magazine done three months in advance. And I'm like, you can't do magazine. You can't do a music industry magazine three months in advance. Right. You've got to have last minute changes. I mean, so you forced him to fire you so you could get unemployment, right? I basically, yeah. Yeah. So you've heard all these stories. I for, I basically forced him to fire me so that I could collect benefits. Cause I should have, I got a severance. Okay. I wouldn't have nice. severance. If I would. But the, um, 
so yeah, so not long. I think it lasted, he lasted about six months after I left and then he sold to somebody else. Then it got sold again and the magazine just petered out. So several years ago, a couple partners and I bought the magazine and we reached out to Jerry at that time. And she basically, she was a little bit receptive until they found out I was involved. And then she's like, I want no involvement. So she's, so she's still, still mad at you. She's still mad at me. Didn't you almost hit her with when your I, car one I day? Off, I piss people off. What's that? <laughs> I said, when I piss people off, I piss people off. I don't go halfway. Do you think it's justified, <laughs> though? Do you think she deserves to be this mad at you? Uh, not at all. No, it was, okay. I, I would. I would. That is. There's probably not. There's probably not. Um, I'm trying to think. There's nobody else in the world I'd rather bury a hatchet with than her. To be honest with you, it's, I don't have a hatchet. She's got it. It's just. Um, I, there's absolutely no reason for there to be animosity. I mean, there's just, so why not I understand, yeah. in hindsight? I understand why she felt the way she did. I mean, honestly, the same exact thing happened to me at metal edge. I just didn't take it personally. I got squeezed out. I got squeezed out because the new owner wanted the person that was in, he wanted someone who could pay less money to, cause I was making less money than Jerry was make no mistake there. You know, he wanted somebody he could pay less money to than me who would do exactly what he said, who would have the magazine done a month early every month instead of a week late every month, because I was the guy that would pull a story at the last minute because I found out tool were dropping a record. So I'd pull a band to get that tool story in at the last minute, because I wanted us to be as fresh as possible when we hit the newsstands, because when you're dealing with magazines and lead time, I didn't think that a music magazine should be three months old every time it hit the newsstands. No, and he didn't true. agree with me. Yeah. No, so, cause sometimes I remember looking at the tour dates in metal edge and I was like, the, the show already happened. I can't like yeah. see that show. Like I'd buy the brand new al- uh, issue and it'd be like, these are old tour days. Yeah, <laughs> the internet that, totally changed. The, it kind of ruined things, honestly, for yeah, magazines. And that's, and that's, that's part of the, that's also part of the issue. You know, it was, it was a huge, huge set of challenges putting a magazine like Metal Edge out mm-hmm. back before, before the internet. I mean, and you think everything we take for granted now, like I was going through back issues a while ago and there was, we would have the addresses and the pen pal section and the phone numbers and all that stuff. Like you would never do that today because today you just go to Facebook. Yeah, today totally. You go to Instagram, yeah. You know, but we had like, we had pen pal sections. I remember that. Yeah. Like when I came in, one of the things that I said was, you know, and again, it was just the question of being coming from a different background for me one of the first things I did was pull out all prisoners. Like there was prisoner mail was a huge part of metal edge. And I was like, we are a lawsuit waiting to happen from some, some girl starts writing letters to a prisoner. Like this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. If a parent finds out. Good point. So these were like little things that I did just because I understood the legality of the publishing business a little bit better than Jerry did because that was my background. Sure. I, I took, you know, I, I was, journalism major. So I, I knew the legality of what we could get away with and what we can get away with, couldn't get away with. And like, you got to pull the pen pals out. You can't let 14 year old girls write letters to criminals. Yeah. That's a bad idea for sure. Bad idea Cause they get out of jail and they want to go meet the girl. And you know, I'm yeah. not saying prison doesn't reform everybody, but you know what, just in case it doesn't reform one person, you can't have a 13 year old pen pal. That right. In the no, that's a and bad that, idea. Those were the evolutions we made over time. Yeah. So you leave Metal Edge and then you worked at a city search website and then the VH1 thing. This is interesting. You were you did some uh, spots on the VH1 uh where are they now cuz you were your girlfriend at the time worked for them. And um I trying to find is there a link to this or can you tell me like what did you talk about cuz I want to see I these. I was like I, I'm gonna be honest, I did so much stuff for VH1 um 
the first VH1 thing I did was, it was actually MTV. MTV was my first television thing. I did an interview with Rob Halford and with two. And it was Rob came out to me in the interview. So I was, and he was, he told me, I mean, and the thing, he goes, you're the first person I've ever told this to. Mm. You're the person. And he told me. Did you know before can't. though? Or no, I didn't know before. I mean, no, look, we could all people. How can you keep that, that a secret in the music business? Oh, well, so here's what happened though. There was no internet at the time. So it wasn't like Rob had to worry about me going and jumping on telling TMZ that so-and-so that Rob Halford is gay. Rob basically, and here's exactly how it happened. We were doing the roundup questions at the end. We finished the interview and we're doing the roundup questions at the end of the interview. And one of the questions was, if you could sleep with any celebrity, who would it be? And Rob said, how we, and without missing a beat, I read the question. I go, if you could sleep with any celebrity, who would it be? And Rob goes, Howie Long. (laughs) And I just and I just kind of I write down Howie Long and then I looked up and I go Howie Long and I go Howie Long and he looks at me and he goes he goes he goes yes and he goes you know I'm going to tell you something I've never told anyone ever before and I go what's that he goes I'm a gay man Paul and I was just and I just kind of like looked at him like and he goes I've never told that before and he goes it feels really good to get to to, to say that and I was just like. Wow. And he, goes, and he looked at me and he goes, what do you think of that? I'm like, well, good for you. I, and he was, and Rob said to me, he goes, I really, he was like, I, I so like the way you responded when I told you, he goes, do you want to come to MTV with me? Because they're going to ask, they're going to want some opinion. I'm about to go on MTV and come out. And he goes, do you want to come to MTV with me? And I was like, yeah, I'll go to MTV with you. And I went to MTV and MTV interviewed me about what it meant to metal that Rob Halford was gay. So that was the first thing I ever did wow. for MTV and MTV parlayed into VH1 because my girlfriend at the time was working on okay. uh, behind yeah. the music. And so no, what did it mean to metal that Rob Halford was just like, Oh, we should have my, my boyfriend's the editor of metal edge. We should have him on. And that literally just pretty soon I was doing everything for VH1. But going back to the Rob Halford thing, what did it mean to metal? Did it mean anything at the time? Or, I mean, now it's like if someone comes out, nobody cares. Was it a big deal back then? I didn't, I don't think it was. And I think, I honestly think someone like Rob was the perfect person to do it because it, he was so big and, when you looked at when it happened, you look at it and you go, that's really not that when you start looking at the videos, you go, okay, I'm not completely surprised. You know what I mean? It's just like, wow. But Assless chaps and uh, I think leather. It might've yeah. had a different impact. It might've had a different connotation if it wasn't the singer of Judas priest, but because he's so iconic and so big, it put him in a, it, nobody was going to criticize him. Well, yeah. And, and Judas priest like, wasn't like a wimpy. There wasn't like a poison or an enough's enough or one of the more lighter, poppier hair bands. I mean, exactly. Judas Priest was hard. If somebody, if somebody with big, poofy hair, if somebody with big, poofy hair came out first, yeah. that could have been a completely different narrative because all of a sudden it would have become, it could have become more of a joke than a real storyline. But because it was Rob Halford and because he was the definition of metal, he was the metal god. Right. You know, it really, what impact can it have? You know? Yeah. So you did the VH1 stuff and then um, eventually I you start. I mean, VH1, I did a lot with VH1. I'll have to. Yeah. Maybe you can yeah, send me was, a. I did basically, any behind the music that had to do with a rock band I was on. Oh, you're any, on those? Okay. Yeah. VH1 actually offered me the, the VH1 classic. There was a network called VH1 classic. Yeah. And they actually offered me that the role of being the face of VH1 classic. And I you turned it down, right? 
I turned it down. I was moving to LA at the time and it was just, they wouldn't let me do it from LA. They didn't mm. want a situation where I had to fly back and forth because mm. I was a huge expense. And I, you know, there wasn't a ton of money in VH1. I mean, it was, I was getting paid, but I wasn't getting paid a lot. Mm. Um, and it was basically a situation where if I wanted to do the VH1 classic thing, I had to stay in New York. And at that point I was over New York and I wanted to be in LA. So. Okay. So then is, is this when you start managing bands? Yeah. So I moved to LA. I was, I took metal edge with me to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So at this point, metal edge shifted into the same, I became Jerry in Los Angeles because I was running the magazine from Los Angeles, but I had an assistant editor in New York and the title changed. It wasn't managing editor. It was assistant editor. Okay. Um, assistant editor in New York doing, um, all the day-to-day -day functions there. Um, but I still did most of like a lot of the stuff I still did. Like I did billing for Jerry and I still did all the billing myself. Mm. I'm just, I'm kind of a control freak in that way. So, um, I still did most of the stuff, which is why I don't believe the person was a managing editor. I think the title was assistant editor below me, but, um, the, uh, yeah, that was, that was in LA and then I was in LA for a couple months and the first band, um, Joe Lestay from the beautiful creatures. Yeah. Joe called me, um, and asked me if I wanted to go to lunch. And I was like, yeah, sure. Cause I had been writing about beautiful creatures a lot in metal edge. And he basically, we were at a diner in the Valley and he basically said, I know this is going to sound crazy. I know you don't do this, but would you want to manage beautiful creatures? And I was like, well, I don't, I really don't know how to manage. And Joe's like, you do know how to manage. He goes, you've talked, you know more about music than most people do. And he goes, what you don't know, you'll learn. But he goes, you know, we need someone who's passionate about us and who understands it. And, you know, he started citing me all these cases of like journalists who became managers. And I was just like, yeah, let's do it. And that was the, so beautiful creatures was the first band I've managed. That was, um, I think 2000 and well, it was 2001. I just talked to the bass player this morning about the 20th anniversary of the album. Oh, cool. So it's 20 years. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was the first band that was 20 years ago. And I've always, since then I've always managed at least one band. Um, I usually had two, whatever job I had, I was managing on the side. Uh, and then about probably five years ago, I went full-time management. So I'm, I'm working with like, now I have seven or eight bands. Yeah. So you have drowning pool, uh, hurricane, uh, Jason, Charles Miller, and then a, a few other ones. Yep. yep. Yeah. So drowning pool. Um, I had a couple, I worked a couple, like I worked at a record label. I worked at century media. I did a bunch of things. I always managed on the side when I went full-time management, drowning pool was the first full, when I went full-time management, I signed drowning. I came with drowning pool and um, I've been with drowning pool for, I think about five years now. Um, Jason, I've been managing literally. I, I want to say 15, 12 years, 15 years. I've been with Jason. Jason is the one I've been with the longest uninterrupted. The only time Jason and I have been interrupted was I had eye surgery and I literally couldn't work for two years. Um, so Jason had another manager for those two years, but when I came back, Jason and I reunited, but, um, Jason, Jason, I've worked with the longest, but yeah, drowning pool has been like five years. They're the second longest. And then I've got hurricane, a new band called breaking in a sequence, which is David from corn, his oh, new band. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so check that out. Yeah. They have, there's <clears> going to be, by the time this comes out, there'll be a new video coming out. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there's, there's, um, we're gonna have a video for midlife. They did a cover of Midlife Crisis, the Faith No for More. Faith song. No More, I love that song. Yeah. 
really good. So the, the music's up now. They have an EP out now. Um, and the video will be out second week, probably second week in February. Um, then I have a girl called Dendel, double D D D E N D Y L. She's a lot more, um, she's, she's actually one of the full-time singing. She's got a full-time singing job in Vegas. Um, she plays at Aria. Uh, she's, she's a lot more in that L King in that range, like much more singer songwriter, bluesy voice. Fantastic. Is she still performing now during the. She, she went back, uh, I think in fall, she went back. Yeah. When Vegas opened up, she went back. I, she's literally one of the only full-time pl- um, performers right now. In oh, Vegas. I'll have to go check that. I'm going to Vegas this weekend. So I'll have to check that uh, out. Oh, Ar- she's every night at Aria. Okay. Awesome. Every night so, at Aria. you know, we talk about metal edge and we talk about, you know, a lot of people, you always hear that saying like, Oh, they got lumped into that genre of the hair bands. And if you had to pick one band for that statement, that was true. That was, they were unfairly, categorized as a hair band that maybe wasn't a hair band. Like, I mean, I've interviewed a uh, junkyard yesterday, Tora Tora, enough's enough, like Tesla, bang tango, skid row. Do you think any of those, is there one that stand out to you as not a hair band that got lumped into that? Is there any band that I think got lumped into that? The hair band genre that maybe unfairly, cause you always hear I, that like, Oh, you guys got lumped into the hair band uh, yeah, genre. I, Eddie trunk. And I have this very much in common. I hate the name hair bands. I, right. I hate it. So if that's, if that is the definition, I think every band got unfairly lumped into hair bands because I, I think it's completely, I, I think it's not a fair representation. All these bands, whether you're talking, um, and if I look awkward, more awkward than usual right now, it's because I'm wrestling a dog on my lap. <laughs> um, <laughs> fair enough. Just clarify what's going on on my lap right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, uh, I really, I hate the fact that they get defined by the way they looked. And I really, I'm, I'm a huge, huge, huge. Whenever this comes up, the first band that always pops into my head and I'll champion this band forever is Warrant. I think I Warrant, love them. they, they probably, if, if you ask me to name one, I would probably go to Warrant because I think they're, they are the most underrated band of that era. And no matter how much anybody likes them, they're still underrated. Um, and Janie and, Lane, especially as a songwriter. Yeah, Janie, Janie, Janie was a genius, um, is a genius. Um, that band just uh, today, they're fantastic. I mean, they're new, like, they're just, they, they've really, they've maintained, they've, they've just been through, so they've persevered through so much. Um, that said, I don't want to, slight any other band from that era because i just i think by calling them hair bands you're just belittling the fact that they wrote music that has lasted longer than so many other bands could ever even dream of i mean you know take a band take a band like hurricane they kind of they they might even be a little bit before the hair band thing became huge however you know this is a band a lot of people haven't really heard of but everybody but everybody knows the big hit you know i mean everybody look at all of the bands from that era. Anybody that had a single, those singles have persevered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, I'm on to you with hurricane. Um, you know, Tora Toro just came up earlier in conversation, you know, like walking shoes. These guys I love that great, song. Yeah. Yeah. These guys wrote great songs. And the reason why we are all still passionate about that music 25 years later, isn't because they had great hair. We're passionate <laughs> about the music because yeah. these guys wrote amazing songs. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is every artist, that's what they strive for. You know, that that's your lasting legacy. And this 
to, to have it be something, and I understand, you know, Hair Nation, it is what it is. It's a nice snappy name, but to really, to, to take it, to trivialize it down to the way they looked to me, is just a miscarriage of justice for all those bands. Mm-hmm. And I'll let, I'll make Warrant, I'll always make Warrant my poster boy for that because mm-hmm. I feel like they got a worse rap than everybody else. But I, I really think every band, every band deserves recognition because they just, man, they created a scene and that scene has survived and that scene has lasted arguably more than any other scene out there. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a long time. So one of the bands, uh, Skid Row, probably my number one favorite band when I was in high school and Sebastian Bach, love him. Now you're friends with him, but did you guys have some sort of tiff or something? He got mad at you? He gets mad at everybody. (laughs) He got mad at me. It's all in the past now. It's, um, so he gets mad, but he gets over it quick. I don't know about getting over it quick. I mean, that that thing, um, he got over it. I mean, somebody, a friend of ours, like, put us in the same room. A mutual friend put us in the same room and was like, you guys got to get over And again, I, it, was, it was ugly for it was ugly for a bit. Um, it was right around 9-11. It was right around when oh. 9-11 happened. Um, but a couple of years later, it got, that got, we have no, we have no beef now. He well, I thought he said online. something like he, he got, you said something. He, he, got snoozed. Me, he got mad at me online a couple months ago because I retweeted something from metal sludge, metal sludge. And he said, and he's, he suspended me for a month from his timeline because I support metal sludge, but. Uh, so he, you, know, you guys are back together now though. You're friends. I mean, we're, yeah. We're, we're friends. Okay. We're, friends. Yeah, we're, hey. we're, we're all like, yeah. I've, okay. I've, 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 Was that the thing about, uh, you defended great white before doing yeah. a show in North Dakota because uh, you're a manager and you know, you work with these artists and you understand that they're just trying to eat and they're not making the rules of whether you can do shows or you can't do shows. So you kind of sit up for the band because people are comparing uh, them doing a show during the pandemic as them, uh, you know, with the, the, the yeah. fire epidemic. And so you're saying, no, this is not the same. I think it was, and uh, I could be wrong. I think it was Rolling Stone that did it. Um, they basically ran a headline comparing great white playing wherever they played. It was like the Mon- Montana or the Dakotas somewhere up in like, North Dakota, I think North Dakota. Okay. So like somewhere in East Bejesus, United States, you know what I mean? It was just like, um, they literally, they ran a headline comparing them playing this outdoor show to playing in the club and lighting a fire and killing people. And it was literally the most irresponsible journalism. I think I've seen in ever. I mean, it was just, it, it infuriated me. It made me angry. I mean, first of all, you don't make light of what happened at the, at the, at the, when the, when they had the fire, that's not something to even, that should not even be something you're making headlines over at this point. Um, second of all, there was, there was a lot of hypocrisy with how COVID was being handled at the time. And there's still hypocrisy with how COVID is being handled. The reality is the numbers, there was no reason they shouldn't have been allowed to play that show. The numbers didn't reflect that there was even a COVID problem there and they didn't break any local statutes. So why are you mad at them? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, bands are playing shows every day across the country and you're picking on great white. And it was just, it was, a, I thought it was a cheap, cheap, headline it was a cheap way to get clickbait and it infuriated me and you know if if sebastian wants to get mad at me because um i'm defending an artist's right to make a living then that's sebastian's prerogative but at the end of the day that's it's it's about that it's about you know 
there was there was a lot of hypocrisy in what was getting shut down and what wasn't getting shut down. And I live in California and our our local government's a joke. I mean, it's an absolute joke what you're allowed to do and not do here. And, you know, and again, I'm not getting I'm not getting political. This is not it's not a political statement. But statistically, there is absolutely no reason why we should be open now, but weren't opened a month and a half ago. But you know, the minute Biden gets in office, Gavin Newsom says, all right, I'm opening the state back up. Well, the, the numbers that you used to shut us down haven't changed enough to justify this. Hmm. So basically, you've kept us shut down for political reasons for four months. And it's a joke. And that's that was what was happening all around the country at that point. And, yeah. you know, we've been shut down in California and our numbers are worse than Texas and Florida where they haven't been shut down. So maybe we're not doing something right here. And maybe the answer isn't lock everybody in their houses. And that was basically what my my point was in regards to that show with Great White. You know, that local jurisdiction, the local government there didn't determine that they needed to pose restrictions on people. And Great White went and played a show. They didn't do anything wrong. Don't Mm -hmm. get mad at Great White. Yeah, it wasn't their fault. If you want to get mad at somebody, get mad at the local government in North Dakota that allowed it. Yeah, exactly. But there was no reason for them to say not to have a show because they all, they had only had like 10 COVID <sighs> cases in the, in like the state or wow. at that point. And I don't remember right now because it was a while ago. The numbers were absurd. I mean, they were absurdly low. Okay. And that's, there was no reason to get mad at gray white for that. And it's Fair just enough. that to me, just, it was, you know, it was a hot button topic at the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Still is. You know, I, as someone who, as someone who manages bands, and as someone, you know, my wife works at a booking agency and lives are impacted by this at such a level that people can't even begin to comprehend when it comes to music. I mean, everybody just assumes, oh, bands are all rich. Well, a lot of them wrongfully put the impression out that they are because they think that's what they're supposed to do at rock stars as rock stars. But, you know, people's lives have been turned upside down in every walk of life and the music industry is no different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, bands, people have to pivot and people have to figure out how they're going to make a living. People have to figure out how they're going to feed their babies and feed their families and pay their rent and everything. And, you know, there isn't government help. There wasn't government help for bands. And there's, there's very specific, they could say, Oh yes, the government, they made that exception. So you're getting, cause you're, um, you know, freelance work, you get covered now. Well, you don't get covered if your business is set up as an LLC, not a not an S-corp or this, that. Or, there's all these rules people don't understand. Mm. And a lot of bands were screwed by this. And if a band can go out and play a show in a place where it was safe to play a show, they should be allowed to go out and play the show because that's how they have to make a living. And that was my point with Great White. You know, don't don't pretend to understand things you don't understand. And that's right. what people people were doing. Well, hopefully things are getting better with that. Um, another thing that you did, this is kind of cool though. You, you, um, you kind of did like a press release or I don't even know what you call it. And you showed your support for Jeff Tate. When Queens right fired him, you said, I want I'm on team uh, Jeff Tate because them firing him is going to hurt the band and it's going to water down their, uh, yeah. uh, that, the band. That was not, that was not a press release. Um, that was a, a statement um, or something. What do you call it? That, that was actually a deposition for court. <laughs> okay. So, so here's it's a little stronger, I guess, but there, there's, there's so much more to this story. Um, and uh, that, I mean, up until about, uh, 
less than a year ago, that would have been, I, I cared more about what happened with Queensryche than I did anything with Jerry Miller, but I've actually had a chance to talk to all the guys, talk to all the guys on the band on the mega cruise and kind oh. of cleared the air as much as it's ever going to get cleared. But here's what basically happened with that to make a long story as short as I can. Okay. <laughs> so I worked at Century Media at the time. I was the label manager. I was the North American label manager for Inside Out Music, which is a prog rock label under Century Media. I signed Jeff Tate as a solo artist to the label. Okay. Okay. I have a Queensryche tattoo. They're my, one of my favorite bands of all time. I love them. Um, love the bands. Like I'm, I'm a, I, I can nerd out with anybody about Queensryche for as long as they want. I am. So when you uh, sign him, I know more about there's Jeff has joked that I know more about the band than he does. So it's just like, (laughs) so when when you signed him as a solo artist, he was still in Queens, right? Yes. So what happened, I'm a huge, huge fan. And I knew Jeff was, um, I knew Jeff was doing a solo record and I signed that and the hope was we would get Queensryche over to Century Media. Mm. That was what the hope was. The hope was we do Jeff is the, let him put out his solo record. It's not going to sound like Queensryche. And being the fan that I am and being as close, I used to be a lot closer to the band. I got closer with Jeff. Knowing the disruption that a lot of Jeff's musical um, detours have on fans and stuff. What my recommendation was, you know, put it out on this prog rock label where you could do whatever you want and it's not affiliated with Queensryche as much. And then you can still keep Queensryche for Queensryche. We had the, and Jeff loved the idea. Jeff signed with Inside Out. The hope was we would then do Queensryche through Century Media. Um, Jeff hit me up after that famous show where he got in the fist fight on stage with Scott and told me we had a problem and he told me what went down and I knew there had been issues in the band. It wasn't like, cause quite frankly, I knew there were issues in the band from the band's perspective um, as much as I knew it from Jeff. So uh, when that thing all went down, Jeff was under our, already under my umbrella as a solo artist because it was inside out. So my thing at the time was you guys need to get your Queensryche house in order before this becomes a joke, because what you don't want is like, you know, three different versions of queen, you know, there's two different versions of LA guns, two different versions of rat. Right. Yeah. No, we don't want that. You don't want to go down that road. Like Mm -hmm. it's just, all that does is cheapen the brand and cheapen the legacy and ultimately get your shit together. Now figure it out and don't let this become Jeff Tate's Queensryche and everybody else's Queensryche. And it's just, nobody needs that. And honestly, I said, you guys have always been, regardless of what was happening behind the scenes for years that most people didn't know about, you guys were always above that publicly. Like Queensryche were always better than that publicly. And that was the thing for me as, as the ultimate nerdy Queensryche fan, yeah. who, honestly, who loves Michael Wilton just as much as I love Jeff Tate. The hardest thing for me was to turn around and see Michael Wilton and Jeff Tate like tearing the band apart and in the in the process hurting themselves because nobody ever wins the only people that win are the lawyers you know the only people that win in cases like that are the lawyers that are getting paid 700 dollars an hour and they're just keep billing you billing you billing you so the next thing you know you know once somebody does win they play their next year's worth of shows just to pay off legal bills and it's the whole thing i knew exactly where it was going to go and i'm 
I was right. It went exactly where I predicted it would go if they didn't mediate mm. it beforehand. Jeff asked me, so what happened was you had Jeff Tate doing his thing. And then you had, I can't remember what the name was, but the Queens right guys had a new band with Todd mm-hmm. rising, rising something. Was there a dragon in the title rising <laughs> force? I don't okay. know. That's the Malmsteen. There was, they had a name for a band. It was okay. like something, something was the name of the band. And I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, I'll Google it. It's fine. They, <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, yeah. You can Google it. But but it's so they had a side band and Jeff had a side band. Then they were going to use the name Queensryche. Jeff filed an injunction against them, saying they shouldn't be able to use the name Queensryche, and he shouldn't be able to use the name Queensryche. So hmm. the injunction that was placed was Rising no West. Name. Was that the name? Rising West. That's what it was. Okay. Yes. All right. So Jeff, they wanted to change from Rising West to Queensryche. Jeff filed an injunction saying that nobody, including Jeff, should be allowed to use the Queensryche name until it is worked out in court or worked out legally as to who has ownership of the name. Okay. Now that gets into a whole nother ball of wax who actually has ownership of the name and who can. So my deposition, Jeff asked me to make a deposition. Now I, was the label manager for the record label Jeff was signed to as a soul artist. Jeff and I very close. I said, I would be more than happy to give a deposition. My deposition did not say, and this is like where everything got really muddy with me in the band, my deposition, I never said, and if you go back and read, I write for a living. I know what I'm, I know how to write. I never said Jeff is right. Queens Reich's wrong. What I said was nobody should be allowed to use the name until only one person can use it properly. Because you don't want your band to go down the same road of Rat and L.A. Guns and these other bands where it's just it's a public joke about how, which version of the band is it? I don't know. Mm. And it's a, it's a headache, you know, like I said, it's, for it's sure. a pain in the ass for booking agents. It's a pain in the ass for managers. It's a pain in the ass for band members. It's a pain in the ass for everybody. My deposition stated nobody should be allowed to use the name. Fair enough. The Queensryche guys interpreted that as me saying they shouldn't be allowed to make a living as Queensryche. And I became like, all of a sudden I became like persona non grata in the Queensryche world and Jeff Tate's best friend, and that's it. And all I care about is what's good for Jeff and not good for everybody else. And it got that that got just as ugly as the stuff with Jerry. Um, Queensryche ended up signing with Century Media. I was sitting on marketing meetings, helping market the band against Jeff in marketing meetings. I would be sitting in a marketing meeting going, this is how we present Queensryche now so that they don't identify as the band that, and I was like, I was literally putting marketing campaigns together. And when they played LA, they said they wouldn't take the stage if I was allowed in the venue. Like, even though I worked at the label, like it was like, it was hideously bad. So you guys all made up though. We all made up. I went, I went on, I went on, um, mega cruise that they were playing on and i saw them that was the first time i'd seen them with todd and i was blown away by how good todd is i mean todd's fantastic um i was blown away and i I, todd was the first person i actually went up to and i talked to and i just i introduced myself to him and he he 
relatively quickly realized who I was in the, in the whole scheme of Queensryche folklore. And he was like, Oh, you and I should talk. And I'm like, <laughs> so he and I, like, he and I like ran into a corner of the cruise ship and talked for a while. And I was like, God, I feel horrible because I was never anti Queensryche or pro Jeff. I just, honestly, I didn't want there to be. And I'm like, look, I'll be your biggest supporter moving forward. You're fantastic. Yeah. Both of you. And, you know, what Jeff's doing isn't interfering with, quote unquote, classic Queensryche anyway. Like it was this whole we had a conversation. Everything was great. And he goes, you should talk to everybody. So I like, you know, throughout the course of the cruise. Talk to Eddie, talk to Whip. And, you know, I think, you know, I don't think I don't think either one of them are ever going to. We're never going to be as close as we once might have been, but um, it's I. Um, the thing that means the most to me, honestly, is that Todd Latore at least knows that I champion him, and I'm happy that he's really doing justice to the Queen's Drake name. Oh. Uh, and I will always, you know, I, I love Whip. He was, I mean, I was I was closer with Mike than I ever was with Jeff when it started. So that was, it was always just kind of like tragic to me that that friendship fell by the wayside. Um, and you know it'll it'll never be what it was, but at least I at least I made peace with them, and we're not uh we're not mortal enemies anymore. <laughs> yeah. So is that weird sometimes when you get involved with these bands that you're a fan of, and then you kind of have to like sometimes I guess you piss them off even like if you have to write something that's it, it negative happened. about them or I, I wrote a one of my favorite bands is Megadeth, and I wrote um I I wrote a uh, album review for Risk. And it wasn't the best album review on the planet. And Dave Mustaine got offended. I mean, he he was just like, wow. And when I filmed the footage for the behind the music for Megadeth, Dave was nervous. I mean, Dave, Dave was really genuinely concerned that I was going to be highly critical of Megadeth. And he didn't know. And it was, you know, he came up to me afterwards when he watched all the footage. And he was like, man, um, I didn't realize you were that big a fan of the band. And that kind of changes the whole perspective that everything you said about Risk was even written in. So it, it is difficult and it's because uh, I'm a fan first. And that's the thing. I wasn't, I didn't become a journalist to be a journalist. I became a journalist. I became a music journalist because I was a fan and someone, and I, I got pulled into the world. Sure. You know? So um, it's for me, it's about finding that balance between, you know, be, I'll never write an album review as an obnoxious critic. Like, you know, I was, I've been published in Rolling Stone before, but that's not my, that's not where I want to be. That's not my world. You know, mm. it's, I'm not that sarcastic guy that wants to, someone just shared a headline with me earlier today about someone called the new um, Foo Fighters record music to listen to on your bathroom breaks. It's like, why, like, why, if you're that bitter, why do you want to be writing about me? Like, go find something else to do. Like if, if your life is that empty that you have to literally take joy out of joy, like, why do you do what you do? Hmm. And that's, I always looked at it that way. Like, so if I'm approaching a Metallica record, which is Metallica is a lightning rod for me and a lot of my friends, because I, it's a, they're a polarizing band for me. Um, you know, I feel like I'm entitled to look at load and reload, whether it was at the time or historically now with 2020 vision, I'm entitled to look at those however I want to look at those albums as a fan. Absolutely. Alongside Master of Puppets, Ride the Lightning, Kill Them All, and Injustice for All. and Or Saint Anger. Want, yeah. If I want to say as a fan that Metallica are two different bands and the, the, the fulcrum that made the switch was the Black Album, I'm entitled to say that as a fan. There's a big difference between as a fan having an opinion 
and as a journalist being a douchebag. Absolutely. Totally. I agree. That's exactly right. I've always tried to balance that very, very well. And, you know, I will always be a huge Metallica fan. You know, I liked Death Magnetic. I didn't love it as much as other people do because I would rather go back and listen to some of the old stuff. Um, But again, just my opinion. My opinion isn't gold. My opinion is just my opinion. Um, I actually liked Saint. I liked Saint Anger more than most people like Saint Anger. Yeah, I I feel like I would love to. I would love to talk to like Lars in particular because I think Lars is the one that will go off the cuff the most. Like Lars, I would love to talk to him about what they were trying to do with Saint Anger because I don't feel like that conversation's ever been had. Hmm. Because I feel like what they were trying to do, it missed at execution, but I feel like the concept was there. Like in my head, I imagine they were trying to do this like dialed back version, like Down did with Down Two, the second Down record, and. There's no reason to think that isn't possible because Metallica were huge COC fans. Mm. And that was that, that like that movement was happening in metal at the time. And I right. feel like that's where the St. Anger record was supposed to go, but it just missed on execution. Yeah, some of, I have a couple of music teacher buddies and they, oddly, they, they both say that's the best metal, the only Metallica album they like, which is like wow. really bizarre to me. So I don't know. Some people really like it. Now, are you a fan of the black moods? I thought I saw you post a picture of that I was like, oh, that's I so cool. I, I used to manage the Black Moods. So yeah, oh, was... you did? I didn't know that. Yeah, because they're <laughs> local here to Phoenix. And so I was wow, a big that's... fan and I had them on my show and everything. And now they're getting some national exposure, which is amazing. Yeah. So that's cool. So did you live in Arizona then or how did you manage that? I didn't know. What happened was uh, interesting. So when I worked at Street Smart Management, um, I, I mentioned before I had, I had a really bad eye surgery. I literally mm-hmm. for two years, I couldn't, I yeah. couldn't move for nine months. And like mm. when I, when people, when you mentioned I disappeared, I dis mm. I literally had to disappear. I disappeared for two years. Yeah. My wife and I made the conscious decision not to like, I, I drew off, I, I had to draw off social media because I couldn't even use my eye. I couldn't see, but, um, I, what, yeah, what happened with the, eye? was this like a genetic thing a, or just a, detached retinas are really common. People get oh, detached retinas all the time. I didn't know that. My retina didn't just detach. It's this eye. It literally fell completely off my eye. So I had a full detachment. I had no retina left is basically what happened. And if you don't have a retina, you can't see. Okay. So they, ba- I went into surgery and they basically reattached, they rewrapped the retina all around my eye and had to like, I, for nine months, I couldn't move my head at all because the retina had to reheal. Ouch. And it was crazy. It was like, I would go to the doctor once every week and he would go, okay, you're at 6% healed. You're at 8% healed. You're at, and I literally, I had to sleep sitting up for nine months. Oh, so like literally I, I would have pillows like this and I, this is how I sat for nine months, but it was on my couch. But yeah, it was for nine months. Sounds I couldn't move. horrible. Um, there was a question as to whether I would ever see again by, by like miracle of miracles. I have perfect vision now. <laughs> oh, well, that's <laughs> I've had, great. I've had, five, I've had five eye surgeries in the last six years and I have perfect vision in both eyes. Yeah. So it's, um, my, my eye doctor is literally my favorite person on the planet. And Sounds like it. I've him to so many people. Sounds amazing. But, uh, so, so anyways, yeah, yeah the black moves though. Came out of that, when I came out of the eye surgery and was ready to start working again, um, the the former president at Century Media, who was also the head of Street Smart Management, said to me, um, I've got this band I want you to check out. And I was just like, 
based on a lot of the stuff that he signed at Century Media, I just assumed I was going to hate the band. And uh, their name was the Black Moods. And I just assumed they were going to be some like emo core band, mm-hmm. like with like home over haircuts, stuff I don't like. <laughs> and it was funny because I was like, ah, yeah, whatever. And I never listened. And he basically calls me after a couple of weeks of me ignoring his request to listen to this band. He goes, hey, um, I'm dropping the band at the end of the day. The only way I won't drop them is if you call them and say you want me to you want to manage them. And I was just like, he's like, I can't, I can't do it. We don't have, they don't have a manager. I can't put the record. I'm dropping the band. If you don't take this band, he goes, so it's on you now. If you want the band dropped, don't listen to the record, blah, 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 blah. I was just like, man, why are you making me feel guilty? And I literally, I went, I played the record. I loved it. I was like, holy shit. It was really funny. Like I told the band about this and they laughed. Um, But it's, yeah, that was, I loved it. The minute I heard it. Was it the Um, first record or medicine? It was medicine. Okay, yeah. I love them both. I mean, and the new one too, Sunshine. What became medicine? Okay, yeah. Medicine. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that album. It was it was the it was the songs that would become medicine. And um I'd never seen the band live. Uh they are they're amazing live. I've seen them many times. Yeah. So I sight unseen, just hearing the hearing what would become medicine. I was like, I'm in, I love this band. And God, um I literally, I literally um was blown away the first time I saw him live. I mean, Josh is, Josh is a rock star. Josh is, he's just one of those guys. He lights up a room. Mm-hmm. Um, just so magnetic, such a magnetic personality. Um, such, just such a great talent. Um, they were, they were literally God. I mean, I, uh, I love them. I, I love them to this day. We don't work together anymore and I still love them. So that was like, yeah, no, they're that great. A lot. When, you, when you stop working with a band and you still love them, that tells you a lot about the band, but. Yeah. So is there any other bands that like you, you loathe interviewing? Like you just would always like, Oh oh God, not this band again. Is there one that's difficult to interview or hardest one? Or? No, not really. I'm at the point now, as you can tell by just listening to me and talking to me, I could talk to anybody. Like I could, you could literally put me in a room with a total stranger. I could do an interview with anybody with no preparation. It's just, it's, it's, um, so I'm past that point. I'm past that point. The dog's about to go berserk again. Mm. I'm past that point of like being intimidated by interviews. So is there a favorite band that you have to interview? Like one that you really like? I'll be honest. I've always, one of the reasons I became close with Jeff as I did was because I always feel like when I interviewed Jeff, we always go to a play. We always, Jeff's like the perfect example. When you talk about how you interview, like how I interview, you always end up going to a place you never thought you'd go to. Hmm. Like, like I could start an interview with Jeff where I'm talking about a new, new album and 20 minutes. We're talking about like, um, Brexit, you know what I mean? <laughs> or we're talking about, okay. like, we're talking about, we're talking about how we accumulating stuff. Like one of my favorite conversations I ever had with Jeff was about accumulating stuff and how we spend our whole life just it was almost like a Seinfeld episode. I mean, it was just that's and funny. Jeff, I really appreciate that about Jeff. And that's one of the things Jeff, Jeff was always, I think that's one of the most misunderstood things about Jeff Tate was that they, I mean, people just, um, they confuse an intellectualism for aloofness. And I think one of the things that Jeff and I bonded over relatively quickly was the fact that both of us, you know, it's, we're multifaceted and we want to talk about more than just, you know, 
the inspiration for a song. And sometimes the inspiration for a song is more than just the chord progression or a single lyric. It's like, it's a bigger picture thing. And, you know, just like you and I starting this conversation, talking about, you know, talking politics or going, talking about COVID yeah. I mean, music, music is for all of us. Music is the soundtrack of our life. I mean, anybody sure. that can good point. music, music is, we can't have life without music. You know, was, my wife and I are watching Ted Lasso now and there's a soccer player in it and he just runs around and he goes, football is life. Football is life. He's running around and football is life. And for a lot of us, the guy cracks me up, but that's what we're like with music. I mean, music is our life. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't know, I, I wouldn't know what life is if I wasn't, didn't have music around me. If I couldn't walk in and have um, the Amazon girl whose name I can't say, or she'll start doing what I say like I, I can walk into a room and tell her to play any song I want at any moment in time in every room in my house and it's you know that's amazing and I don't know what it would be like you know the only reason music's not on now is because I'm talking to you the second I get off the phone with you I'm turning music on and it's music is such an integral part of our life it's impossible not to tie it to every aspect of our life and one of the great things about Jeff is that the two of us when we talk we always find a way of connecting music to something that you would never think music connects to. Hmm. And that to me is interesting. Another person like that is Maynard Keenan. Oh, yeah. I'd love to have him on. Yeah. I've done a couple interviews with him and he's difficult and he's, he knows he's difficult. And like, I went into, um, I went into an interview with him where I was trying to prove that I told him my goal for the interview was to prove that tool were a political band. And he was like, we're not. And by the end of the interview, he goes, I guess we are (laughs) (laughs) going in. Like those are the fun interviews, you know, it's just because I, I can interview anybody about an album. That's easy. Um, It's about, it's about being able to dig beneath the surface and find that thing that hasn't been talked about before. So before we wrap up, you got to tell me about this new project. You have uh, this game, the gods of metal. Let me try to say right this time. Ragnarok. I say right that time. Yes. So tell me about it. It's got music from uh, the girl from the butcher babies. And uh... I got really lucky during COVID. I got, uh, I got called and asked to do a project with Perry Farrell. So, um, in like a couple months into COVID, I wrote a book with Perry Farrell. So it was like pretty much every day for two months, I went to Perry Farrell's house and we wrote a book that books in his box set that is out oh, now. Cool. So if you look up the Perry Farrell box set, the book that comes in it, I wrote with him. Um, and it's fa- fantastic box set, by the way, I urge anybody that has even the passing interest in Jane's addiction or Perry porno for pyros, any of it, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, the I don't even have a physical copy of it yet. I can't wait to see it. But that was so I did that. Coming out of that, I got hit up a company. Um, Jason Miller was working with a company on a on a role playing game. And for those people that don't know, role playing games are very similar. It's like Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest role playing game is Dungeons and Dragons historically. Sure. So Jason was working with this company on this role playing game. This is Jason. Jason's in that world. And they wanted, they were doing a heavy metal inspired role-playing game. So Jason was like, you should really talk to my manager because this is his world. Heavy metal is his world. So I got brought in to work on music for this game. And it's, again, it's a tabletop game. You play it sitting around a table. You could play it on Zoom. Um, What we did, we made a musical accompaniment for it. So I have a compilation that's going to come out on vinyl. The, The game screen for play is the album vinyl. So when you unfold the gatefold, that's the gameplay screen. Okay. It sits in front of whoever's running the game. 
there's also two pieces of vinyl in that. And one of the pieces of vinyl is a compilation album with just, there's a brand new song from Charlie Benante from Anthrax and Carla Harvey from Butcher Babies. They do a song together. Um, they're doing a brand new song for the game. There's some original music. Um, we have some really cool bands on it. Um, Silver Tomb, which is the typo negative guys. Motorhead is on it. Um, Fozzie is on it. We have a previously unheard song from Fozzie that's never been released before. Um, Armored Saint? The, what? Armored, Armored Saint? Saint yeah. yeah. Armored Saint is on it. Um, there's a band called Icon for Hire, who we have a remix from them that's never have, will have never been heard before. And then we're going to announce we have bands that are going to get announced. That's the first piece of vinyl. Right now, that's in Kickstarter stages. Okay. Um, Kickstarter works differently for gaming than it does for the music industry. Mm-hmm. Kickstarter is kind of like our pre-sale window. Okay. So that's where we're at now. They're at Kickstarter. Um, after the Kickstarter period, we're going to roll into a period for like vinyl pre-sale. All so right. So people, people should order the vinyl. Yeah. But that. The second vinyl is going to be a soundtrack, an instrumental metal soundtrack for the game hmm. that you can play in the background while you play the game. Okay. Sounds fun. But so really, if you go to gods of metal, Ragnarok.com, that's a landing page I wrote that will kind of explain the game to you a little bit. And then you can go to the Kickstarter page from there okay. and you can read more about the game. I just had, before I was on the phone with you today, or before I got on Zoom with you, I had a call where I did a walkthrough of the game that was just, it was fantastic. Mm. I have like a whole new appreciation for the game now. It's basically, you have characters and your first character is the mundane, your mundane world character. They call it Mundania. And you're this character with your nine to five job. And then, you know, the gods of metal pull you out of this world and thrust you into this fantasy realm where your job is to, you know, protect them and fight for them and defend the honor of metal. And it's a really, really, really fascinating game. I love it. Okay. I'm anxious to learn more about the gameplay aspect of it. Cool. But I encourage everybody to go check it out. It's, All right. Uh, and then they can also, if they follow you on social media, I'm sure you'll post updates about it as well when it comes yeah. out. Okay. Yeah. I'm on social media. I talk about, I kind of reemerged on social media. I Great. ducked out around the holidays yeah. and I'm back now. All right. <laughs> and then, um, do you, is there a charity that you work with or any, any charity you want to give a shout out to or here at the I, end? I'm a, I mean, the one I always, my big one, I, I'm a huge, I'm actually drinking coffee from a Guantanamo Bay coffee mug. I'm, I'm a big military, anything to support the military. Okay. I'm a fan of wounded warriors always jumps out. All right. I, yeah. I'm, I've had a few people talk about that one. Yeah. It's, okay. um, I'm, and aside like uh, that and i love dogs i have a ah. paw print dog on my arm so like anything with dogs um best friends is huge both both the dogs i've rescued have come through best friends functions um anything with dogs i'm all about okay i'll put those both in the notes uh Paul, you've had a prolific career with Metal Edge, managing bands, this game. I'm excited to see what the future holds. So I'll definitely be following you on social media. I think everyone else should as Thank well. You. And Thank thanks you. for doing yeah. this. This is, this is fantastic. Anytime I'd love to. Come. All right, cool. Well, thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. I'll talk to thanks you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Paul Gargano. So many great stories. Make sure to follow him on Instagram to keep up with the bands he managed. Plus, keep up to date with everything happening with Metal Edge and the game he has coming out. Follow me on social media to keep up with new episodes and my adventures. And if you want to support the show, you can share the episodes on social media or write me a review on Apple Podcasts. That will help with the search results so that other people can find the podcast. And in turn, that helps us get more listens, which helps the show grow. So thank you for all your support. And here's to another hundred episodes. 
hopefully a thousand shoot for the moon